This podcast is recorded and produced on Gadigal land as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country nationwide and their connections to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. You're listening to It Takes Boobs, a Women's Agenda special podcast celebrating the strength, resilience and grit of women across Australia. Through this series, we challenge the typical sexist trope of it taking balls to get big things done. Boy, is that wrong. I'm your host, Tyler Lambert, and this series is made possible thanks to our friends at Stella Insurance. This episode deals with domestic violence and could be triggering for some listeners. If this episode brings up any issues for you or you feel like you need to talk to someone, please call 1800 737 732, the National Sexual Assault Domestic and Family Violence Counselling Service. You can also call Safe Steps 24 7 on 1800 015 188 or visit www.safesteps.org.au for further information. Michelle Obama once said that grief and resilience live together. These words are infinitely true in the context of Ashley Donahue's life and incredible work. A proud Aboriginal woman from the Dungati Nation, Ashley survived a violent and abusive relationship to become a powerful author, educator and advocate for topics specifically surrounding anti-violence, anti-racism and Aboriginal women. She was the co-creator of the only Aboriginal women's sexual assault network in Australia in partnership with Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia and the lead writer for the National Rugby League NRL Voice Against Violence Domestic Violence Education Resource Kit. Ashley, thanks so much for speaking with me today and joining the podcast. You've worked in the anti-violence space for more than 20 years. Tell us about your pathway to education and advocacy and the work you now do. Um, The pathway wasn't a path I really chose. Um, I was kind of just one day pushed (laughs) up in front of a microphone and I um, started speaking about my own story. And that was like 28 years ago or something like that, like quite a long time ago. And it was when I first started at Mudgingal Aboriginal Women's Centre in Redfern as the bookkeeper. I was the bookkeeper. And I came into this space and I was in a, a domestic violence relationship myself with two young children. But I didn't think that my situation was that bad. And it wasn't until I worked in this environment that I thought, hmm, you know, I could start identifying that what the relationship I was in wasn't the best, you know, it wasn't it wasn't healthy, it wasn't good. Still took me many years after that, you know, first inclination to, to leave and whatnot. But um, there was this event and my CEO at the time said, oh, can you just get up and say a few words about, you know, what you're going through? And I just started, like, like it just come out of me and then I thought, oh, my God. So that was kind of the the beginning of it, of like being able to identify what domestic violence was because growing up, and I'm going to be very frank and honest here, it wasn't unusual to see violence in the community that I grew up in, up in Kempsey, like at football matches or, or you know, even in downtown. Like it, it was not, I don't want to say normal because it wasn't normal, but it wasn't something that I, I hadn't seen before. Mm. So I guess my answer to your long answer around your question, my advocacy started with my own healing. Yeah. And what are are some of the ways that you work with, you know, victim survivors of violence now? Well, now it's it's more me speaking and doing educational stuff. 
I've written my own book. I self-published it five years ago and now Megabala Books are going to publish it. I've picked it up and want to republish it. So that's going to go out in like all over Australia whereas when I self-published it was like really only people I knew or who followed me on social media mm. or whatnot. So it started with with that. The beginning of it was actually using rugby league as a vehicle to get the anti-violence message out. So I did a lot of work with Tackling Violence, which was is a country rugby league initiative, again using rugby league as a vehicle to get the anti-violence message out. And I wrote the NRLs, the first training package for the NRLs, Voice Against Violence. So mine started in that training space. And then that, what that's led to is me writing my book, developing training myself and speaking on the subject, like becoming a, a, what, a somewhat expert. I don't like... I don't think anyone's an expert on anything except their own life. So my expertise in this is on my own lived experience and I always come from there. And the reality is, um, you know, I see myself in a lot of young women, you know, and so my thing is get in young before you get into a DV relationship because right now everything that's put in place is after the fact. Yeah. Prevention's got to be number one as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. You're incredibly open about your personal experience with violence, um, having survived an abusive relationship with your children's father and then navigating your son breaching an AVO against his own partner. Where do you find the strength or the boobs within the context of this series, I guess, to persevere and drive to change systems that are broken? Well, I say it with my chest, (laughs) (laughs) with my titties, with my boobs, whatever you want to call it, Um, because I... I am so clear on where my line is drawn. My line is clear. My, I've, I've got zero tolerance. And I show that by, you know, by supporting my son's ex-partner. I supported her. He's my son, you know, but I am not going to say, oh, well, because that's my son, I'm going to move the line of where I stand. No, my line is, is drawn and it's drawn deeply and firmly and I will not move it for anyone, not even my own child. And I think that is the issue in this space is that until it happens to you or you know someone that's involved in domestic violence, everyone will say, oh, I've got zero tolerance to violence until they have to deal with it. And then that line moves, that that line in the sand moves. And we can't do that. Mm. We have to stand staunch and it has to start with us because I believe that every single person has the capacity to draw that line in the stand and to make their homes, their communities, their towns and suburbs as safe as they want it and it begins with us and what our tolerance to violence is. And I have a zero tolerance. Yeah, yeah, and not to have any kind of exceptions around that rule. No exceptions. Is there a social or cultural expectation, do you believe, on Aboriginal women to be stronger and more resilient um, than others, particularly in the context of domestic and family violence? It's not a cultural expectation at all. It's societal because, you know, when you go back into the history of Aboriginal women in this country, you know, this country was born on the bodies, the violence, the deception against Aboriginal women. You know, we we talk about domestic violence, sexual assault, coercive control now. These were all things Aboriginal women were were going through during colonisation. I say this often that, you know, at the beginning then, Aboriginal women that were having fair-skinned babies, that wasn't a Disney romantic movie like Pocahontas. 
That was rape. That mm. was violence. That was women having children to men that they didn't even know because of that violence. So it's not that it's a cultural thing. It's a thing that's been we've been so subjected to such high levels of violence since colonisation, which is only 200-odd years ago. And that tolerance has shifted down over the years because of the systems in place that have been extremely violent and racist towards Aboriginal women. Yeah, yeah. I guess with that in mind, I mean, Aboriginal women are 34 times more likely to become victims of violence than white women. Why are we so complacent to something so horrifying? How do we address this? Well, we start telling the truth about the beginning of Australia. It's a racist system. You know, if an Aboriginal woman goes to a hospital, she doesn't get treated the same as a non-Aboriginal woman that's been through domestic violence. If if police are called to an Aboriginal woman's house when there's domestic violence, she's not treated the same. And that was prevalent in that TV series, Look What She Made Me Do, um, that was narrated by Jess Hill, you know, when an Aboriginal woman was standing there dripping in blood with a sheet around her, telling the police that the person that just violently assaulted her was going to harm her child. Her father was there. He's going to harm my grandson. What did the police do? They threw her in the back of a bull wagon and took her to the police station. What happened? Her son was murdered. Mm. What more proof do we need that the systems are failing Aboriginal women than that that was blatantly put on TV? How many other stories are like that that people don't know about? That's, and that's the issue with domestic violence in this country. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter if you're black, white or brindle. It doesn't matter how rich you are or what god you worship. It happens in every single town, city, in Australia, in the world. But in Australia, for Aboriginal women who are less than 2% of the population and sit in the highest percentage of all things violence, it's not only violence perpetrated by men and other women, it's systemic violence, it's systems, it's organisations in place that are violent and racist towards Aboriginal women because they don't treat Aboriginal women equal in this country to any other nationality woman in this country. And that is the truth. Yeah. You've spoken about your challenges with imposter syndrome and believing that because the work you advocate for has shown up at times within your personal life, that you're somehow a fraud. How do you fight against that feeling? It's just that thing, I think, because when you work where I'm working in organisations that whose main work is against making it a safer, more accessible place for Aboriginal women, and you're out there speaking about domestic violence and and what not to do and how to make it better and what, what's going wrong, and when it's still happening in your family, you, you start to think, oh, well, geez, you know, who, who am I to be out here saying these things when I can't sort it out in my own family? So what you have to realise is that when you're doing this work, other people are going to do whatever they want to do anyway, regardless of what you say or what you do. The only thing I have control of is what I allow, what I tolerate, and how I respond and deal with it. And that's that's what gets me through. Do I get embarrassed about, you know, my son breaching an OVA? Absolutely I do. And I've, I have these hard these conversations with him. And my thing of thinking is that you should know better because I've taught you better. But that's that thing. It doesn't matter what you teach someone. They're going to do whatever they want to do anyway. And so it was extremely difficult and, and 
and I was embarrassed. I, I was embarrassed because here I am out here advocating for no for violence against women, and my son is breaching ABOs. But then that's I've got to I've got to separate myself. I am not my son. I am me, and then I've got to reflect on you know his trauma from what he's witnessed with the violence that I was subjected to, and allowed and and I say allowed because I allowed myself to be treated so badly because I knew it was wrong. I knew I didn't want it, but that overriding love for this you know so-called love that I had for his father um, blinded me as to the effects of what it was having on my children because I wasn't aware of the effects. Because I'm aware of those effects now, I can say that to him, who he himself may not be aware of those effects that's having on his children. You know what I mean? So it's that's that cycle and that's that cycle we have to break. And the only way we can break that is by talking to people, younger, younger people, not waiting till you're out of it, but doing it before it even happens. Yeah, yeah. The circumstances around domestic and family violence are so much more complex than people Absolutely. understand um, and the, the trauma that goes with that and and, um, and the flow-on impacts of that. Um, but I would say that, you know, your lived experience of these issues is what makes you such a powerful advocate. Yeah, and I speak the truth, you know. I'm, I'm very transparent with what's going on in my, life, in my life because I can't be out here talking about you know, domestic violence and women's safety and then pretending that, like, if I covered that up or because somebody else will say, oh, what's she out there big noting herself for talking about all this stuff and look look what her son's doing? You know, so it's it's me taking my responsibility as, as me and then putting his responsibility on him and, and, you know, helping him to sort himself out but always supporting, you know, the mother of my grandchildren in the most best capacity yeah. that I can. And that, it's not easy, you know, and I talk so honestly because I know that if I'm feeling this, there's other women out there feeling this too, is then the guilt. Because then what happens, I then start reflecting on what I subjected my son to and then I feel guilty. I think, oh, my God, see, that's if I wouldn't have done this or if I would have left before this, mm-hmm. then he wouldn't have seen that and maybe he wouldn't think that that's somehow how you deal with things that are getting out of your control. I don't think that guilt ever leaves you because I could still, like, I could cry now of the guilt I feel when I think of what um, I subjected my children to. And that wasn't my fault. It's absolutely you know, not I your fault. Myself, but it's just the, um, like, I put myself in there. It's almost like this victim blaming on our own accord, you know. We, we hear victim blaming from society and from people asking why people don't leave. But then for women in domestic and family violence situations, they can almost place that same pressure and that same feeling on themselves. Imagine, you know, women whose children have been taken from them by their fathers or partners. I can't even imagine the guilt. And there will be guilt because you'd be be feeling, you know, like I, this happened because of me staying with this person or whatnot. And I don't think that that is, um, sorry, my voice is going on. I don't think that is spoken about enough. It's not. And so, therefore, women are going through their lives carrying this guilt. And I've done all the therapy, <laughs> I've done all the healing, I've, you know, done the eat, pray, love, I've, I've, <laughs> I've done it all, trust me. 
you know, because when, when you reflect and you think back, and any woman that's been through a DV will, will, will know this if they've done their healing where they can reflect back and understand and take, and this is the big thing, taking responsibility for your part in these things happening that have affected your children. That's a hard bullet to bite because nobody wants to, to blame themselves. But we have to take responsibility for our part in what we allow to happen because otherwise you're never going to heal yeah. and you're never going to get past it. And you, you may never do. I don't, I don't know if you ever do because, I'm, you know, it's been like 20 years or so since I've left the father of my children and since I've been in that DV relationship and yet I can still have those feelings of guilt just speaking about it. I think it's because it's so fresh with the um, the breach of the ABO and, and I was so shocked by it and, and whatnot, you know, because and that, it, it just, that's just proof that it doesn't matter how good your intentions are or how much you put into your children. You can't measure their trauma from what they've been through or understand it because it's not yours. But it's also not your burden to carry. It's not, it's, yeah, it's, it's not my burden. It's not my burden, but I still feel a sense of responsibility. Yeah. Because yeah. had I not subjected him to that, maybe he wouldn't be inclined to think that's how you deal with shit. You've spoken about the isolation and loneliness you felt after leaving your partner and the shock and the immense challenge of having to truly be a single parent. How much does that shock and these feelings persuade women in abusive relationships to stay and what can be done to change that and support single women more holistically? You've got to feel the void. You've got to feel that gap because when you're in a domestic violence relationship, you're very busy. It's like any kind of addiction. It's like if you're a heroin addict, you get up and you're very busy chasing that that drug. You know, if you're a gambler, you're very busy thinking, where am I going to get the money to go and gamble? Even if you're addicted to food, like how, where, how am I going to get all this food without people, you know, knowing that I'm eating? You, you know what I mean? Mm. So it's you've got it's like smoking. You give up smoking and most people start eating because you've got to fill that space with something. And for me, it was education. I went to uni. And so that kept my mind busy. So then I wasn't so much worried about him or what he was doing because if you don't feel that space, then you start thinking, oh, God, I miss him, I'm lonely, and you go back because you're so high on high alert, waiting, wondering, you know, predicting what's going to happen. And when you leave, it's like a like the, you have that relief for a couple of days and then you start thinking, well, geez, what am I going to do, you know? And then the anxiety sets in and then you think, oh, geez, maybe if I just walk over here, he might see me and all those things. So you have to feel that void, whether it be with art, sport, taking better care of something, yeah, weaving, macrame. Yeah. You have to fill the void with something. Otherwise you risk having that hole that's left by them. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. I'm also interested in your feelings around what structures um, could be changed and what support mechanisms could be put in place to better support women that are going through this kind of experience. Again, because, you know, filling the void and finding distractions and finding, you know, other outlets and hobbies is all very well and good. But for single women and sole parents, it's a really hard thing to find that time for yourself as well, you know, in a, in amongst trying to care for your kids and, you know, overcome trauma. 
yeah. what are some of the ways that government and employers even can can better support parents going through this? Government need to, for one, have a unified definition of what domestic violence is Australia-wide. We've got coercive control, family, all the violences. Have a def- definite definition of what it is Australia-wide. If someone assaults a woman in Western Australia, the consequences shouldn't be any different than what it is in New South Wales, Queensland, wherever. It should be across the board. That's number one for government. They need a better response than police being the first response. So there has to be an alternative to that. They have to put women's centres like... See, the beauty of Mudjinga, which is 100% run by and for Aboriginal women, is that we have programs here, but we also have playgroup where mums come with their children, can talk and engage with other women. We have art club, art as therapy for women to just come and do artwork. We have weaving. We have jewellery making. We have these things that aren't all about doom and gloom, but they just come and it's filling the void. The whole purpose of me doing that here is so that, because I know that if you don't fill that void, then you're going to go back. Every suburb should have a women's centre that where these things are free, that are, that are funded by government, so you can do these classes in a perfect world, you'll have a creche set up so that the babies can be left and the mums can go upstairs and do that for those children that aren't at school. They're making it the solution so difficult that for everyday mums who are now single mums, who may be on Centrelink, who may not have a job to go to and fill that void, mm. they're making it so complicated and it, it can be as simple as, as setting up women's centre in each suburb where there's free activities, where they can take their children with them and if they're doing jewellery making, there's someone to watch them in a safe, culturally safe space for all all women. Like the space has to be safe for any woman that's going through domestic or sexual assault. And then, you know, having those yarns because, when you know, when you talk and you're doing things with your hands, even pottery classes, and then what that does is it makes these women think, oh, I'm not the only one. It's not just me. Mm. And I think women understand that domestic violence is rife, but again, until it happens to you or you're, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. What are some of the red flags you educate women to be aware of? The main, the biggest red flag for me is acceleration of relationships. I know that there's women that has been love at first sight, but it's like, okay, you've seen this man twice, three times, and he's saying, oh, I can't wait for us to have six kids. Mm. And also the, the isolation, the, the slow, and you don't see it because you're in this love bubble. You say, you're in this, oh, my God, he just wants to spend all his time with me. And then he's saying, oh, well, you don't have to go and spend time. You don't have to go to netball or, or you don't have to. Oh, don't go to uni today. Me and mm. you hang out. Or, or that constant um, ringing and texting. And another big one is, oh, let's have joint social media. These little things where when you're in that love bubble, you think, oh, he just wants, and then before you know it, you look around and you haven't seen your friends for a month. You've stopped playing sports. You've fallen behind in uni or you've taken time off work because that isolation is key in the power of control. And another big red flag is before there's ever any physical violence, there's verbal, mental and emotional abuse. It's the name calling. It's the trying to change why are you wearing that? Oh, that doesn't. Oh, what's your hair like? You know, that, that judgment. That all happens and that's all that power, using that power control slowly, slowly. 
just to overpower mentally, emotionally, and then physically that woman or that man or that person. Mm. How do we encourage men to take a lead on education around prevention and how do you you envisage that shifting the status quo? We need men to fight this fight. You know, men are the main perpetrators of violence verbatim. That's violence against women, men, everyone. So therefore we need to set up programs where men are. And there's three main places that men, big groups of men hang out. That's the pub, prison and sports. That's why the programs that we've done with tackling violence and voice against violence were so successful because we used rugby league as a vehicle to get the anti-violence message out to men. Now there was one time, and this is when I knew I could speak anywhere. I was up the coast. It was raining. I was with um, one of the ex-NRL players, which is what we'd do when we'd go out because then the, the men would want to meet them and then they'd have to listen to me and the other facilitators that were talking about DV. So this time it was raining. I had, it must have been about 45 men in a dressing shed covered in mud in a rainy day and I was the only woman in there talking about domestic violence. At the end of that session, I had at least 15 of those men in a line waiting to speak to me. And I knew then that if I could speak there, I could speak anywhere, you know, speaking about a subject and, you know, talking to men about what domestic violence is because still in the mentality of the majority of people, they think that domestic violence is only physical. It's only assault and that's not. So men come up. So, you know, because I take charge of the money, am I financially abusive and whatnot? And then, and you know, one of the saddest ones I ever went to was we were out west and at the end of it three men stood up and they disclosed that they'd witnessed their fathers murder their mothers in domestic violence. And that was two non-Indigenous men and one Indigenous man. And we've got to remember that these men that are perpetrators were all ones, once mm. someone's son, someone's baby. So where along in society do we accept or or give permission for those babies, those little boys that grow into men. When is it that we're teaching or allowing them to treat women so badly? There's there's something there. Otherwise it wouldn't be so right worldwide. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I yeah. know it's all about this masculinity and, and whatnot, but there's somewhere that, that men are getting this messaging that it's okay to behave like this. And we know legislation can be changed, and that's proven with that King hit or first punch or the King hit legislation, yeah, yeah, yeah. where they close down suburbs, you know. But do you know that that legislation doesn't apply to somebody in de- domestic violence because the person has to be a stranger to you and they have to be under the influence of alcohol or drugs. So if a husband or a boyfriend goes home, punches his partner, wife, or girlfriend, and kills her, that rule doesn't apply to them. That's how ridiculous the legislations are around domestic violence in this country. Yeah. I guess the the issue is, you know, getting Australia to recognise the gravity of the crisis at hand. And we can't say, oh, but he's a good man or I'm a good man. You're, if you're a good man and your brother, you see your brother assaulting or abusing his girlfriend or wife or partner and do nothing, what you're doing is saying, yeah, well, I'm giving you permission to do that. Yeah. And this is what happens. And this is another thing that doesn't get spoken about enough. If your friend group, right, and there's one that's that's a perpetrator of some form of violence and that group doesn't pull him up, then every time that group is together, he's going to know that he can get away with that. So he's going to do it. 
people saying, well, you know, that's not cool. No, we don't do that. That's not, that's not how we treat the people that we love. And we need more men standing up. We need men going out talking to other men and forming men's groups and whatnot because this isn't a women's problem. This isn't women's business, domestic violence. You know, it's everyone's business. But men have to really take the lead role into reducing or eliminating violence because the majority of perpetrators are men. And it has to come from the top down. Like we've got all these people that are sitting at the top making these decisions that are perpetrators of violence, sexual assault, pedophilia, all these things, and they're making the rules. And if they're untouchable, then the people down below are going to say, oh, well, you know, they can do it and we can do it. And, you know, there's just there's the, the, the repercussions for domestic violence in this country aren't severe enough. Like I said the other day, I, I mean, so I could do three years standing on my head because that's all I'm going to get. And when, and when they're letting, you know, men out who've been 20 incidences of domestic violence, breaching OVOs, and he's still <laughs> let out on bail, where, yeah. where's the deterrent? Yeah. Where, where's the messaging saying, well, if you do this, then there's consequence. There's no consequence anymore. The, all the consequences are so small that you're going to hear men saying, I can, and that, that's an old jail term, I can do that standing on my head. You know, I can do that jail time. That's not going to matter. I'll get out. And then you've got these men murdering women. And pregnant women too. They do seven years jail, they're out, they live their life, they find they can just have children and carry on. And yet the count of women is going up and up and up and up. And we're not hearing about it unless it's on social media or podcasts like this. Because our government and the media aren't putting it out there. Unless you follow the pages that talk about domestic violence, you're going to be oblivious to it too. Yeah. Ashley Donahue. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today um, and sharing your story and for your courage um, in advocating in the way that you do. It really is profound and and so meaningful. Um, So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.